You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management archaeology and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 137 for May 23rd, 2018. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about recording archaeological presentations at conferences and the issues and ethics that go along with it. So go get your conference papers ready because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Doug in Scotland. Hello. Sonia in Utah. Hello. And Stephen in Calgary. Hi. All right. So as we mentioned in the last episode, uh, I think we did mention this anyway, we were going to talk about um, recording archaeology and digital ethics. And I actually have a really long, uh, not really long, but a really good episode on the Archaeotech podcast. And I'll link to that in the show notes regarding uh, virtual and digital ethics. Paul Zimmerman and I spent the entire episode talking about that. And this is all, that was a response to the SAA forum that I did on the last day of the SAAs uh, in Washington, D.C. this last April. But one of the things we were talking about, and I think Bill White, who couldn't make it today because we're actually recording on Mother's Day, um, and he has, you know, kids and a mom and a wife, <laughs> so they've got things to do. Um, but anyway, uh, so we were talking about this, and he wrote a blog post about it, but we're talking about recording archaeology and digital ethics. And recording archaeology is actually the name, if you haven't subscribed, and I'll link to this in the show notes as well, uh, if you haven't subscribed to Doug Rocks McQueen's um, YouTube channel called Recording Archaeology, go check it out because there are, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Doug, but I think there are thousands of videos on there of conference presentations. Um, and you guys always do such a great job. You're always, uh, not always, but most of the time I've seen, you'll have video of the presenter. So you'll set up a camera in the room and then also doing a screen record of their slide presentation and then mesh all that together and have a really great kind of um, split screen kind of thing of their slide presentation and of their uh, their actual them presenting. So um, I think that's really great. I love it. Um, and what we're, one of the things that we're going to talk about today is really why we haven't seen that here in this country. Because Doug, uh, Doug and his efforts, you know, you're really hitting a lot of the conferences in the UKs. It doesn't seem to be an issue, although we'll talk about that and see what kind of challenges you've had in setting that up and getting that going and, and how you've worked on that. But I have approached several of the organizations here in this country, and everybody seems a little apprehensive about it. And and I'm talking about just audio because I told them I said, "Listen, I can I can I can you know edit out any sort of thing." Like I've never heard somebody in a conference presentation actually list the coordinates of a site, like the UTMs or the lat long of a site. Like I've never heard anybody do that. They might be displayed on a screen somewhere or on a map where you could find it, but I'm just recording audio. Um, so Doug's recording video as well. And I wonder in this country if recording the screen presentation would be some confidentiality issues, especially with CRM projects that are presenting, because sometimes, um, well, most of the time that's proprietary information, not proprietary, but protected information and uh, and should not get out there. So let's just start talking about this. And I want to get your guys' thoughts initially on if you were at a conference uh, and somebody wanted to record your presentation, would you say yes or no? And Sonia, I think I want to start with you because I'm currently in talks. Nothing is successful yet because we're just in preliminary conversations about this, but I'm preliminary talks to actually record some, if not all of the Great Basin Anthropological Conference um, 
lectures, not lectures, but papers. And I mean, that's right in your back door. So I assume you're going to go to the GBAX this year. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. So if somebody said, Sonia, we're going to record your presentation and put it up on the internet for all to see, um, whether it's audio and or video, what are you, what, what would you, what's your initial reaction to that? My initial reaction would be, okay, uh, uh, the first thing that I need to do is request permission from my client to make mm -hmm. sure that they're cool with that. And if they are, then I have no objections to it. Um, I'll probably be a little bit more sensitive to um, how I say things, mm -hmm. um, or uh, I may use less technical uh, terminology um, and more familiar terms, um, because... I, I mean, I, in general, I do that anyway. Um, but if I know that it's going to go out to the public, I want the public to be able to understand it. So, mm -hmm. again, first thing I do is check with the agency or client or both and make sure it's okay with them. And then uh, um, make my presentation easier to understand by the public. And in some cases, that could require a rewrite. So if you knew ahead of time that it was going to be recorded, you would actually alter your presentation to suit that recording, to suit a wider yes. audience. Probably, yes. That okay. doesn't mean that I would necessarily change the, the content of it. Uh, but uh, if I received permission from my client and the agencies, I would probably uh, modify my language okay. um, so, simply to make it easier to understand. Oh, indeed. Indeed. Well, and that's... So that's that's a question. That's an interesting perspective because I'd actually never heard that before because we'd never really talked to anybody ahead of time. Most of the time when I've recorded presentations, I've just showed up. Uh, unless I was chairing it, then I'll give the you know the people ahead of time. I'll I'll get their permission. I'll say, hey, I'm just going to plug in an audio recorder and record these presentations. And I don't know if anyone actually changed their presentation to fit possibly a wider audience because I told them it was going to go up on the Archaeology Podcast Network and be heard by you know tens of thousands of people potentially and people who are not archaeologists. But I, I didn't get the sense from listening that they actually did change their presentations, but who knows? Um, that's a, that is definitely something I hadn't considered before. Um, Steven, what about you? Would you be adverse to someone recording your, your presentation, either notifying you ahead of time or telling you five minutes before? <laughs> um, yeah. Well, and, and that's kind of the, uh, kind of the, one of the considerations, right? Mm -hmm. Um, like Sonia was talking about, uh, you know, a lot of what we do, particularly in CRM is, is collaborative work. If you show up 30 seconds before my talk and ask me if you can record it, I don't have time to talk to my collaborators, right? right. Like these are people who ha are essentially stakeholders in my presentation and they probably had to, you know, in a lot of cases, I, when I've given papers, you, know, you send it out to the client or who, whomever, whoever has um, some sort of involvement just to be like, okay, here's what I'm doing. I might tweak the wording a little bit, but this is the gist of it and, and go from there. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the concept is not as a recording. The concept is, you know, I'm going to present it to a professional audience. Right. So if all of a sudden you're like, well, we're going to record it. And it's like, I, I can't say yes. Um, mm -hmm. you know, like, it would be better if that was a part of the registration. For sure. You know, like I, I am, you know. Consent to so, recording. Yeah, exactly. And it has to be opt-in. Yeah. Right. So like, you know, I'm filling out my abstract, you know, would you consent to recording your paper? You know, click right. there. Um, 
you know, so, so that's one factor. Um, the, the other factor, and we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, so I'm sure we're going to touch on it, um, is that my perspective of conference papers are that most are uh, preliminary in nature. So I, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, like, you know, I've, I've done the work. I'm thinking about how to interpret it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, it's basically like, here, here's some, I don't want to say initial findings because, you know, the findings are usually pretty well set at that point, but it's like an initial interpretation or, or maybe even not. Maybe, maybe it's like, you know, this is the direction I'm heading for my research. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm kind of throwing it out there for a professional audience to get feedback um, and, and, and see how that goes. And, and right. the problem with, with, with recording it then is that, you know, the, the, this is like a, an unfinished product. Um, and, and, and it's, and that's fine. You know, if it's going out to the prote- uh, professional audience on a broader scale, right? Like if it goes out on archaeo Twitter and all the archaeologists on Twitter are like, Hey, you know, you can try this or you can try that. That That's great. But there needs to be a sunset clause because eventually the finished product is going to come out. And if people are still looking at the unfinished product, mm-hmm. they're going to get the wrong picture, the wrong story. Right. And, and so, um, and, and this is a big deal with technology in general, right? Is that, you know, like there's a point where this, this stuff has to end. Mm-hmm. Or, or yeah. archived in such a way that it's understood that it, it's deprecated. You know, before we before we throw this over to Doug, who's got a lot of experience with this, um, I'll, I'll just make a couple comments on what both you, Stephen, and Sonia brought up, because it's really, really interesting to me when you include a medium such as audio or video recording, people's attitudes toward this whole thing change. Because one thing. Um, one thing I've definitely noticed, especially in the era of Twitter and live tweeting conferences, is nobody asks permission to tweet out comments and quotes or even pictures of slides from conference presentations. And nobody seems to care either. Like nobody seems to mind that. Uh, I, I, I'm sure it's happened occasionally, but I've never seen it personally. Somebody saying, hey, could you take that tweet down? It's of a slide that I didn't want up there. But nobody, there's no warnings in the in the handbook or the program guide. There's no warnings ahead of time. There's nothing saying, hey, no flash photography, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> no, uh, but, but wasn't there? I mean, wasn't there a big thing on, on, on Twitter, like when people started live tweeting conference papers about the etiquette of tweeting conference papers? Sure, there might have been, but there's no real regulation. No, but but there there's still etiquette, right? Like there there are sure. still ways of being polite. And and um one of the reasons why I don't live tweet is because I'm not going up and asking them if 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 I can tweet stuff. And I'll do mm-hmm. title slide because I, I figure that's fair game. But I'm not mm-hmm. going to interpret what some people are saying. I mean, a lot of times I'm I'm using it as like side channel crosstalk anyway, like commenting. Right. Um right. but th- there was a point where it was a very big deal about, um, you know, how to behave at conferences. But yeah, mm-hmm. I, I haven't seen much in more recent times. And, and so, you know, the question is, like, are more people just okay with it or just resigned to it? Or are right. the people who have dealt with it as an ethical issue continuing to do so? With that? And, and the people who aren't on Twitter just aren't even 
aware it's there. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that's more likely the case. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and yeah. it's probably, you know, multiple um, per, you know, perspectives on yeah. that. Oh, well, I, I want to kind of step back to something that Sonia said, though. Um, mm-hmm. When she was talking, like, she, she would change the wording to be more public. Um, right. I would not change change my language um, it, because it, it you know it's it, that's the intended audience, and if you're recording, um, you know me talking, that audience isn't necessarily going to change. Although scope scope might be broader, like I'm not turning it into a public archaeology paper if mm-hmm. if it's actually like a methods paper aimed at professionals, you know, right. like like that. It, I, I don't consider that. I don't even consider conference papers part of the ethics of involving the public because it's not, it's, it's 90% of the time, uh, you know, professional audience. If Mm -hmm. if I'm giving a talk at the local society and, you know, general pop populations, you know, open to the public, come and find out what archaeologists are doing. Then yeah, it's, it's public archaeology talk, but I don't, I don't consider Mm -hmm. conferences inherently as a, as a public archaeology thing. Yeah. That, that was my, my final comment I was going to make before we get this to uh, Doug is, is the concept of, of privacy at a conference uh, in, in general, because just about anybody can go to just about any conference. There are some restrictions, but um, you know, if you pay the money, they'll give you a ticket to go to the conference. Uh, And, but that being said, most people, if they're not in the professional sector, they don't go. But like I said, there's very little regulation. You you often don't know any of the, you know, every single person in the audience when you're giving a paper. So your expectation of privacy or confidentiality or, you know, some sort of exclusivity for the people who are there is kind of um, uh, kind of not there, honestly. And then the other thing is I've, I've encountered resistance with people doing exactly what you said, Stephen, presenting at like Heritage Society monthly meetings and things like that. It's like, you know, you know, none of the people here are archaeologists, right? Like none of the people here are professionals. They're all just interested in the subject and they've come to hear you speak. And yet for some reason, an audience of 20 is better than an audience of 20,000, um, you know, in, in regards to recording it and, and putting it out there. I don't know. It's a really, it's really interesting thing. And I'm glad we're having this conversation. Um, we, we've only got about three minutes left in this segment, but I'm going to throw it to Doug because he has been topping so many comments in the, uh, <laughs> in the thing, just ready to talk. So Doug, I don't know where we start on this, but how did, I think I'm just going to throw it to you with a question before we really get to addressing to some of those comments. Cause I want your take on how you got started in this. What was some of the early resistance that you met in setting all this stuff up and getting to where you are now? Uh, actually, so I realized we're coming up on a break, so that might be something I can pick up on the other side of the break. Sure. I know Sonia has a comment, and maybe we go to Sonia for that last comment to finish out the section, and then I can jump into that, because that's, that's can... quite in-depth uh, discussion <laughs> right there. Like, so much resistance, so much resistance. <laughs> Yeah, I, I want to follow up on um, uh, on something uh, said a little bit earlier um, about uh, my cha- changing of language. Mm-hmm. This doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to um, change all the language in in a in a presentation. It would be something more like uh, we're talking about lagomorphs, for example, mm-hmm. and and usually in a technical meeting we would say lagomorph, 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 lagomorph over and over and over again. People. Uh, professionals or people who are zooarchaeologists would say, oh, okay, he's talking about hares or rabbits. But right. if, if we're going to present this to the public, 
every now and again, I might come back to it and say, a lagomorph is a rabbit of some sort, or a hydric soil is a wetland type mm-hmm. soil. You know, I'm, I'm not talking about changing the, the professionalism of the presentation. I'm talking about changing or defining things a little bit more often so that if the public is listening, that we should uh, that uh, we we want to educate them. I mean, that's the point of public education in archaeology. If we keep saying lagomorph, lagomorph, hydric soil, hydric soil, you know, uh, oxidized, you know, using all these technical all this technical jargon, and we don't define it um, mm-hmm. every now and again, especially for the public, especially if we know the the presentation is going to the public, um, we're starting to talk over their heads, and I and. And uh, that tends to turn people off, and we want people to be interested. So that's what more of what I was explaining or, or trying to say. I would I would be more conscious of of modifying my presentation that way. The other the okay. other comment um, that I wanted to make was regarding the um, the presentation is often in draft, and and I can definitely get behind why somebody wouldn't want their presentation put out to the public for comment. Because it's still in draft, um, you want to make sure things are right. Um, I, you know, it, it, this is slightly related. When I was working on my master's thesis, I uh, ha- had felt like I had done comprehensive research and I couldn't find some information that I needed. So I posted. This was back in the '90s, so uh, we were still on forums and uh, instead of chat rooms. Um, but uh, I posted a request for information, and I got my hindquarters chewed off by um, by by someone <laughs> who is a still a professional archaeologist for not doing my research. Hmm. And I'm like, I have done the research. Where is this coming from? You know, I, I all of a sudden I'm I, I'm getting I'm getting attacked because I they've perceived me as not doing my research when I have done it I've exhausted it and now I'm reaching into people who might have other information. So when you put something out into into the public, the public generally or or frequently will take things as gospel, um, and we have to be That's very true. careful about that. Okay, that's well said. Hashtag fake news. Okay. Um, (laughs) Doug, Doug, take us out of this segment. Okay. Yeah. I would actually just add to that to say um, we should probably look at changing our wording, not so much for the public, but for other archaeologists. So I just learned about two minutes ago what a lagomorph was, but it is one of the (laughs) things that archaeology covers such a wide range of subjects that you can't be an expert in all of it, but you know, you kind of want to dabble. And so you want to know what's happening with lipids and you want to know what's going on with GIS so that maybe if you have a project, you'll have a, a rough idea of what that sort of work can do. Um, but honestly, most of our work is so highly specialized that it's not just that the public can understand it. I would say probably 90, 95% of most archeologists don't understand other archeologists and what they're talking about because we use such highly specialized language. And there's a, a time and a place for that. And I understand that, you know, certain language actually helps when you're, you're talking to other people and it, it makes it go faster and, you know, it helps with certain levels of communication. But I am actually kind of of the view that most of what we do when we give presentations aren't quite understandable to a lot of our peers, uh, which I find to be a problem. 
Uh, so mm-hmm. possibly something. Sorry, it's a bit of a negative note to end on this segment, but uh, yeah, it's another good point. So, um, and I'm and I'm sure we'll get into some of that uh, in the next segment. So let's take our first break and come back on the other side. In the meantime, um, check out these words from our sponsors. We do have a couple of them, so check that out, and uh, we'll be back in a second. Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, British Columbia has launched a professional online master's program built by and for cultural heritage management practitioners. The thesis-based MA or coursework-only graduate certificate both offer integrated study of HRM's ethical, legal, business, and research priorities. The MA thesis requirements comply with registered professional archaeologists and other jurisdictional standards. This is the perfect graduate program for bachelor-level CRM practitioners ready to make a career commitment, but not ready to relocate or quit their job. We have advertised for SFU in the past, and we had a long podcast about SFU's program, and I highly recommend it. If you're looking to get a graduate degree in cultural resource management, this is the way to go. Apply today at www.sfu.ca forward slash archaeology. That's www.sfu.ca forward slash archaeology to take your career to new levels today. Hey, podcast fans and digital archaeologists, have you heard about WildNote? It's a data collection app that works online or offline on your smartphone or tablet, iOS or Android. It allows you to collect field data easily, manage data efficiently, and generate data reports and site records effortlessly. We have a growing list of state site forms built in for your use and some generic forms that will work anywhere. Check out the shovel testing and photograph forms. You can get a free all-access 30-day trial today by going to wildnoteapp.com. That's wildnoteapp.com for your free 30-day trial. Now back to the show. Okay, we're back with the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 137, and we are talking about recording archaeology specifically uh, right now, recording archaeology presentations at uh, conferences and such. And we've gone back and forth with all of our uh, opinions and some comments on on how we would do this, why we do this, and, and some other concerns that we might have. But Doug is well-versed and experienced in doing this and, and probably the most experienced archaeologist in the world, I would almost venture to say, in recording archaeological presentations. Um, and if he's not, then the other people aren't promoting themselves as well. <laughs> because if you look at anything that's been recorded lately, it's probably on Doug's channel. And, uh, and that's where we go. So, Doug, um, we started off before Sonia got into her comment last time asking you about a lot of the resistance and, and starts and stops you had while getting this thing going and, and really establishing yourself as somebody who can do this and is trustworthy and things like that. Why don't you start by just just getting into that process and, and what it was like and what you had to go through? Yeah, um, it's it's been sort of organic. And so I guess you could say I've, I've made enough mistakes to kind of figure out how the best way to do it is. Um, and so actually, I'll, I'll take it back to a comment. I think it was Stephen who said um, opt-in versus opt-out. Um, and mm-hmm. so when I do conferences, we actually work on an opt-out sort of system. And we don't uh, – we give people advance notice, though uh, lots of people ignore their email. So there's always kind of a surprise of like at the day when people walk up, and they're like, like there's a camera. And I was like, yes, we sent you an email, several of them. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, I didn't read them. Um, <laughs> that happens a lot, but what we do is opt out because it's a bit like, um, organ donation. 
you get a lot more people if it's opt out than opt in. We also, when we do our recordings, uh, you have like usually two or three stages to opt out. So you can, we send an email around asking people to opt out and some do. Um, we, at the day of, they can opt out. So they can just say, hey, please don't record. And we just turn everything off. And then we send a copy of the presentations to people afterwards, and then they can either opt out or they can ask for edits. And so we do get a fair, you know, maybe about 10% of presentations, there's a bit of an editing. So someone would be like, actually, this slide so-and-so is, um, I, I messed up. I, the arrow was supposed to go somewhere else. Can you put this different slide in? And we do that. Or they'll be like, can you cut out minutes 12 through 14 where I called that other archaeologist an asshole? Um, <laughs> and, and we do that. But it's, it's actually not that – it doesn't happen that often. And I'd have to say most, most of the time, people are way overcautious. So they'll ask me to cut out parts that I'm like, I don't see where someone could get offended by that. But, you know, that's, that's a good part. Um, so we always do that sort of opt-out uh, way of doing it just because it's a lot simpler and it's mm -hmm. really hard to get archaeologists, especially at conferences and you know a lot of different things going on to opt in. Um, most people just don't actually read enough of their like if you if you put it into the um, the form to sign up for the conference, most of them won't do it. Most people don't read that well close enough to actually know what they're opting into or not. Uh, so that's that's sort of one thing we do. You have that in the form for conferences right now. Like, have you you guys been doing that recently? Yeah, um, especially for a lot of the smaller conferences, um, mm -hmm. it'll say this will be recorded by so and so. Um, if you need to opt out, we'll contact you anyways. Okay. So we we do that, but it, this has also been a process that's been going on for six, seven years, 2011, 2012. Okay. Um, and so the reason it's grown is a lot of it's referrals. So I'll do one conference and it makes people feel comfortable about it. And then they'll be willing to have their conference recorded. Um, so it is a bit of um, a flywheel where you build up eno enough momentum until it eventually goes. But also part of it is the approach. Um, so uh I know, Chris, you'd said that it's not a big thing in North America, but actually there's um, – it's hit or miss on the areas. So yeah. Archaeology Southwest, I think they're in Tucson. They put up most of their talks online. Uh, the Oriental Institute in Chicago puts up um, all, their all their talks, all their conferences online. And then I, I apologize right now. I'm probably going to butcher it. I think it's Azor. Is it something like – it's the Middle Eastern um, Archaeology uh, Society of some sort. And I can't remember mm -hmm. where it stands for, Association of something. Right. Uh, and they do all their conferences online on YouTube channels as well. Okay. Um, so there's actually quite a few people that do it, different organizations. It just depends what, what your topic is, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, you, you could completely miss it. But there is a lot happening in North America um, with lots of people recording, and it's more people are recording as well. Um, and I realize I'm kind of talking on, so I'll, I'll try to move <laughs> on to some of the comments I had. Um, the one thing is uh, back to you know what you guys have been talking about: public versus 
uh, private and stuff. Um, we're very clear that these presentations are conference presentations and that they're meant to be aimed at a specific audience. Um, and I think it, it is all about the audience you want to go for. And uh, it's, it's up to an individual speaker, but I wouldn't try to say, tell people because it's recording, try to aim for a public audience because it is really very different presentations, almost so different that um, I'm not sure if, you know, there's enough overlap that you could do both like a, a highly technical one and a presentation for the public. Um, there are two different audiences, two different ways of talking, two ways different ways of communicating. Uh, I don't know if I'd do that. Um, and then uh, just a comment on tweeting and stuff. It was a mm -hmm. really big deal. Um, I think it's a bigger deal over here because you have Lorna Richardson, who's done a lot of stuff on ethics. Right. Uh, but there's a lot of conferences over here in Europe that will have ways for people to opt out. Um, so the CAA, which is the Computer and Analytical Archaeology Conference, uh, which is now an organization, uh, we recently put together a conference ethics. Um, and part of that we put opt out. Um, so if people don't want their presentation to be tweeted, uh, it's now an opt out, which is a lot easier. Um, and it's logistical reasons because if you had every speaker have to opt in and say, oh, you could tweet, again, most of them are going to forget. Uh, mm -hmm. So we've gone for the opt out because it's just easier. But there are people who will say, uh, please, these are sensitive issue um, slides. I can't show them outside this room. Don't tweet pictures. Right. So, I mean, there's, have you guys run into that in any of your, your conferences where people, have they, have they actually put together any sort of like how to do social media or anything in any of the conferences you guys have been to? I've personally only seen informal stuff, you know, people putting out at the beginning of a big conference, like a couple tweets saying, hey, this is a great format to, to tweet your things in. Like I, I know a few years ago at the SAAs, they started putting down the session number versus starting with like the person's full name and title and all that stuff um, because you only had so many characters. Um, so but other than that. I've, I've never heard anything that was blatantly official, like just that everybody was aware of. Maybe there was some fine print somewhere that, that nobody read, like you said, Doug. <laughs> but um, I've never seen anything. So some people uh, posted, th tweeted things on, on Twitter for conferences that I weren't, wasn't attending. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of drawing a blank mm -hmm. as to what, which ones they were. Um, Might have been AAAs or the CAAs, mm -hmm. the computing one. Um where they, they did, they had like, uh, like, you know, kind of a point about tweeting and, and they included what, what types of hashtags to use and, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure that I've seen that sort of thing recently. And, and part of that might just be, um, my, my uh, Twitter use is a lot more sporadic now. There's still no enforcement of it, though. Like if a, if a conference really wanted to hit this hard, they would have somebody in their social media group because they all have some sort of social media coordinator for their own social media or something like that, like monitoring the, the conference hashtags and then contacting people if they put something up that was um, either flagged by another attendee or just seemed inappropriate. They could DM them and say, hey, could you take this down or change it? Um, but I haven't seen anybody even if they're doing that, they're not overt about it or I've never tweeted anything that got me flagged. <laughs> I'm not really sure. So uh, oh, your, your name's you know, on a list somewhere. Don't I'm sure it's on lots of lists. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Doug, before we get too much farther, I want to address one big elephant in the room as far as recording goes. 
this stuff isn't cheap. You have some uh, pretty sophisticated gear for doing this. Um, you've got software for recording the screens. It takes a lot of time to put these presentations together, especially since you're doing video. Um, and I don't, you don't need to talk about your prices or cost or anything like that. We don't need to put numbers out there, but could cost be a factor for some of these conferences? Like, are they, I, I guess the biggest question is, are they paying for having this done? And my first instinct would be probably not if it's going on, not their YouTube channel, it's going on your, the YouTube channel that you coordinate. Um, but what, how does that work from a cost standpoint? If, if you're taking the information and putting it on recording archaeology, YouTube channel, do they pay to have this done? Or would they only pay if they wanted it behind their, you know, paywall or on their website? Okay. The answer to that is complicated. <laughs> I'm uh, sure it is. <laughs> yeah. It, it really depends. So, uh, some of like the really tiny regional ones, um, I just do for free and they might mm -hmm. pay for like a train ticket. Oh yeah. Small, actually kind of smaller ones are better because what they'll do is they'll get funders and then they'll actually pay for my time. So occasionally mm -hmm. I actually get paid, um, like a day rate of what it would actually cost me to do this. Um, nice. Most of the time, it's not. Most of the time, I'm doing this volunteer, and they may be covering costs. It's actually been quite a a struggle to get conferences to even cover, you know, volunteer costs, um, mm -hmm. and that's that's been a process. So uh, I'll start with a conference, and maybe I'll offer to do stuff for free, and be like, "Oh, I'm going to be at the conference anyways. Um, I've gotten my travel covered from a grant or a project or something like that." And I'll be like, "Well, I'm here. I can." record a session or two. And then after they kind of see that, then they're, they're more comfortable with it. So I've done that uh, big ones over here is tag, but even mm -hmm. the EAA, so the European association of archeologists was the European archeologist association. I can't remember where that, which a is, is which a, um, that, Oh, you were there for Chris. So Glasgow, yeah, yeah. Glasgow, I did all on my own. Um, that was all volunteer. But since then, EAA has now uh, paid for costs, and they've actually um, put in a lot of money this last time to help with equi equipment costs as well. Uh, so one of the things is I try to get some sort of payment, not so much as it pays for my time, but it just there's equipment that needs to be bought. Um, sure. So it's all variable, and I'll get back to the point of it's actually not that expensive. Hmm, okay. Um, it's a bit time consuming. So you have to think about people's costs in that way. So it can be expensive there, but a sense, uh, the screen recording, all it's open source. It's mm -hmm. open OBS, open broadcast system. It's what people use for like Twitch and YouTube when they're doing gaming. It's actually meant for gaming, but you can do screen captures. Um, there's a free software, um, DaVinci I use, uh, there's there's two tiers, like a free one, and then you can pay a little extra, get some extra parts. Um, but it's quite brilliant. If not, there's uh, Shotcut, which is a completely open source version. Um, so that's the editing. And really that, I mean, right there, you're looking at free. So actually everyone, if you had a decent enough microphone, which some computers do, uh, possibly you might be looking at co costs with microphones. Um, you could just do slides and audio and the top you, you put it in there, you hit record, everything goes through a little chopping at the beginning, at the end, it's quite quick and anyone can do it. Uh, so there's no reason that any conference pretty much anywhere could not do it from a technical standpoint. 
Um, there might be a little cost in like a microphone, but you're talking like maybe to get a halfway decent one, a hundred bucks. Um, and right, you know, right. you could do that per session. Um, I mean, that's still not a cost that's, that's small, but it's manageable. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's actually quite easy to do, um, if you want to do it like that. And that's actually what some of the bigger conferences we're doing recently is it's just going to be slides and audio, um, because I just can't spend, hundred days yeah. of the year video editing. Cause it's just too time consuming. But if I don't have to put like uh, a shot of the person in there, it cuts down my editing time by so much. Um, and then you can edit audio. So audacity, what we've used for podcasts in the past to edit, you can mm-hmm. use all that software. There's lots of tutorials. Um, anyone can do this for pretty much almost no cost if you wanted to, um, or a very minimal cost. Indeed. What about the ethics behind, um, say, the YouTube monetization? It's, uh, you know, they, they'll do that whether you get the money or not. YouTube will put ads on it. <laughs> so, uh, no, you can turn you off can that. that off. Yeah. yeah. So I don't run any ads on any of the videos. Um, and there's this, what we don't want to bore all our listeners with, there's reasons to have to do with um, copyright. Mm-hmm. Um, and so basically if you put anything on YouTube, uh, copyright's fun in the digital world. Cause let's say your server's based in like the United States, but the company's registered in the UK, but the copyright infringement happened in Germany. Whose laws do you follow? Right. And that gets quite expensive, but usually the laws, if you're putting something on YouTube, it's probably going to come under us copyright laws. And so some people will include um, uh, images that they don't own the, the copyright to in their presentations. And I use fair use, um, which is a, a, a part of copyright says that, you know, if it's, if it's for a legitimate reason, um, learning is one of them. And you're not like, so if, if it's just a small part, like if someone completely ripped off a paper and like did word for word, read out a paper that's already been published and like on the big publishers, that would be copyright infringement. But if they Mm -hmm. take one image and use it in their presentation, it's minimal. It's not going to cost the actual publisher. Like no one's going to be able to not replicate that paper by that one image. Um, It's it's minor. But one of the other parts of that is if you're making money or not. So um, I turn off all the ads. And so I make no money from advertisement um, just so I avoid that issue of copyright, though um, I've never been sued yet. And there's, yeah, thousands of videos I've put up. Um, occasionally, I get copyright notices through YouTube, which has to do not with any images ever. Um, but occasionally, someone puts music in their, like a video, they'll play a video in their presentation. I capture the music mm-hmm. and they'll get a notice from YouTube. This is claimed by Sony. Um, and I basically go back and I say, oh, it's fair use, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, okay. And then that's it. Um, but right. the, with that, they'd either get money if it was monetized. But since I don't monetize it, they get nothing anyways. It's really not a big deal. Um, okay. Yeah. But so there are a lot of things you do have to consider, like copyright infringement and stuff like that um, when putting these up. But it's not, it's not that big of a deal. Indeed. 
Okay, well, we are going to take our second break on that note, and we will be back in just a minute to wrap up this discussion about uh, recording archaeology, and uh, and possibly we'll dive into a little bit of digital ethics, a little deeper anyway, back in a second. Hey, podcast listeners, do you find yourself wondering what the latest tablet or smartphone could do for your business? Wonder what GPS to pair with your device? Just trying to figure out how to go digital in the field without breaking the bank and or making a bad investment? Or did you find a technology company to work with, but just aren't sure the questions you need to ask during the initial conversation? Well, you're not alone. There are literally thousands of tech combinations out there, and it can be really tough finding the right one for your business and your workflow. My name is Chris Webster, and I've been working in CRM since 2005, and I've been a tech enthusiast my entire life. I spend my time trying to figure out how to make archaeology more efficient, both technologically and financially. No one is going to give you a big pile of money to do whatever you want with, so you have to make the most of what you have. The right gear can mean the difference between zero margins on that next project and an employee benefits package. That's where DigTech Concierge comes in. Let us be your technology guru. Whether you have just a few questions or want us on retainer 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, we're here to help. With years of experience, tens of thousands of acres of survey done completely digitally, and many, many people trained, DigTech is your tech BFF just waiting to guide you through this process now and through the inevitable changes to come. Should you hold on to those tablets or upgrade? What about the new operating system? Will it crash your apps, or can you go ahead and do it? We know the answers and can guide you to a profitable year. Go to www.digtech-llc.com slash tech dash concierge to book a consultation or book us for the year the yearly retainer includes unlimited calls and support and company training on software and gear that's digtech-llc.com slash tech-concierge and concierge is c-o-n-c-i-e-r-g-e to get going and go digital today call us before you make any decisions we've been there before i'm jessica uquinto and i'm the host of the heritage voices podcast Heritage Voices focuses on how CRM and heritage professionals, public employees, tribes, and descendant communities can best work together to protect their heritage through tribal consultation, collaborative ethnography, and indigenous archaeology. Now back to the show. All right. Welcome back to CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 137 about recording archaeology. And this is the final segment. And Doug, you had uh, another follow-up comment to some of the things we've already mentioned. Yeah, it was um, it was about how we approach conference presentations. I think uh, Stephen and Sonia have touched on this, um, but I would like to expand it a little bit, is that people should realize a conference presentation is a practice. Um, it's, it's almost like when you talk, you see like comedians and you read interviews of comedians and they, you know, before they go on like the comedy central or those big shows where they they do their hour long show, they go to a lot of smaller venues and bomb a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically it's a lot of practice and um, that. I think should be the view for pretty much most conferences. It's about getting the practice out there. Um, and it's, it's about, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to get feedback in a, a safe environment and uh, a place where people will be able to comment and stuff like that. I know that's not every conference with some people at conferences viewing it as a life or death struggle and trying to prove the person giving a presentation wrong. Um, but in general, it is about sort of getting feedback and practicing and sort of playing with your ideas. Um, but I also think that's something we should consider more widely across archaeology in that 
as soon as you've published that paper, and actually most likely by the time a paper is published in a peer-reviewed journal, it's already partially out of date or will be going out of date at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think, I'm not sure if we mentioned this earlier, or if it was mentioned just, you know, in the chat in between the segments. Um, but it's the idea that like, we need to present the final product to the public. I think that's a horrible problem we run into with archeology span in that we're trying to present ourselves as experts and that we know the story when in fact we are experts, but we definitely don't know the, the ending to most stories. Um, and I think we're doing ourselves a great disservice because we're trying to tell the public, turn off your brain. This is how it is. Don't think about it. Um, mm-hmm. And then, then they don't think about stuff. And then they go to, cause actually let's be honest, archeology. span So my videos get some fairly nice views for what they are conference videos but you know, a hundred thousand million views on like crazy conspiracy stuff. That's just you know, aliens built this, and um, Templars are destroying the world, and this is archaeologists are part of the thing. And the public eats it up, and they see this, and they we haven't told them be critical, and you know, it should be critical of us, but it should also be critical of all those other people. We should be training people in those skills to be able to see bullshit. And understand bullshit from actual scientific process. Um, and so I, I do think that we sh- this is my personal opinion, uh, maybe you guys have different views, that we should never present to the public as this is what it is. We should present to them the process and how we got there. And if they disagree with us, that's great. Um, if they think that we're right, that's great. Um, and if they think they're ro- we're wrong and completely go off, well, that's not much we can do about that. But our our goal should not be sort of like tiny little bits of these are facts you should know. Our goal should be teaching people a process of how to think, how to think critically and how to understand the past. Um, mm-hmm. But that might just be me. Uh, what are you guys' thoughts? Yeah, I'm glad you brought this back up because I was going to comment uh, on Stephen mentioned something about this in the first segment about how, what they're presenting might not be a finished product. And if that gets out there and then they do have a finished product, you know, then there's, there could be some conflict in there, some informational conflict. However, you know, I, I think I agree with you, Doug, is that do we ever know the end of the story? Is it ever a finished product? This is a science. And I understand that what Steven probably meant was, and, and I'll give you a chance to defend yourself here in a second. What you probably meant was, you know, maybe what you're presenting at the conference uh, turns into, you know, a polished peer reviewed paper, but a conference presentation is not peer reviewed typically. I mean, you might have somebody look at it, but it's not quote unquote peer reviewed. And, you know, maybe there are some errors in it. Maybe there are some, uh, some directions you decided to go differently when you actually publish that. Uh, a lot of people don't even publish their conference presentations. Um, you know, maybe that's where it dies, but either way, we're never quite done. And that's, that's my comment on that. I mean, we just did an interview with um, Sir Barry Cunliffe over in the UK from, um, he's got a new book out. He's actually got a second edition of a book out called The Ancient Celts from Oxford, Oxford University Press. And this is a second edition of a book that he published over 20 years ago. And, you know, that's a long time. But I mean, everybody recognizes that, you know, they could go back and read the first edition. And there is going to be some 
I don't want to say incorrect information, but there might actually be some slightly incorrect information on there only because we didn't have as clear a picture as we do today. And we still don't say we have a hundred percent clear picture of the ancient Celts as we do today. Obviously there's always more to learn, but they learned enough in the last 20 years to go out and write a new edition of the book, update some information, add some information, probably delete some information, do whatever they had to do to, to update that book. So I, I think what you're saying, Doug, is totally right. We need to educate the public in critical thinking skills and let them know that science is um, is not absolute, especially archaeology and our study of the past. It's uh, it's an ever-changing medium, and we're constantly learning new things and updating our theories and updating what we know and then presenting that. And when we present it, it should be a presentation of the most current understanding as we know it today. But tomorrow could be a completely different presentation. So... That's my thoughts on that. Anybody else, Stephen? Yeah, can can I respond to that? <laughs> absolutely. You're absolutely right. Like, like I'm I'm not saying that that you know we we shouldn't let our you know mistakes and, and stuff be out there. That you know it's obviously an, a changing process. The problem is is that everybody's going to go to the one venue mm-hmm. and not the next venue, and and. So using your first edition, second edition analogy um, that, yeah, we can go to the library. We can still read the first edition. Some people probably will, but the publisher is not printing the first edition. That if you go to the source, you're like, oh, there's a second edition now. I'd better use that. And and if you go to a a catalog and stuff like that, a lot of times uh, now with digital catalogs, it will be like there's a newer edition. Um, and the, the problem is, is like, if, if I give a paper and it goes on YouTube, Doug's YouTube channel, and, and then I continue my work and do more work and come up with, you know, mm-hmm. get, get killed by a reviewer too, and have to rework my, my work a whole lot and, and then eventually get it published and stuff. That's a different stream. Mm-hmm. Like if you're going to Doug's youtube channel they're not necessarily seeing like oh this is deprecated unlike you know the the editions of uh, of books or you know if you think in terms of like software code or software it's it's like you're using an old version you're you're using you know but it's all going through the same clearinghouse Mm -hmm. except that's that's how journal articles work though in a sense um so Sorry, a plug for another thing we're working. I'm working on is we're doing a thing uh, called research frameworks, which is basically a list of research and questions and stuff like that. And it's updatable. And the idea is you could go to one place and be able to see what the newest uh, article is you should be reading. But currently, it's not widespread. So you know, for the last hundred or two hundred years, if you publish in a journal there'd be an article, but it, you know, stuff would change and you'd have to know that there's been articles published 20, 30, 40, a hundred years later that you need to look at. Um, I think it's, it's, we're asking a lot of people, but we should always be asking of people to realize that when you see something, it may not be the most up to date and that you need to take that next step to research it. Um, uh, I think it's a problem not just uh, with videoing, but a problem with, I mean, you could do a blog post um, 
I'm pretty sure if we were to go back to some of our earlier podcasts, we, we'd probably <laughs> think like, oh no, that information's changed. Um, we should update it and stuff like that. And I think it's a huge mm -hmm. problem in trying to be able to connect to people what that update is. So like on the YouTube channels, I can put links and say, this is the newest version or you should go read this paper because this is what this presentation eventually came into. But you still need someone to take that effort to go and click on that link. Um, I think it's a massive problem across all of science that we haven't quite figured out a way to not just archaeology, but physics or um, what it, there's a, that whole thing about how a lot of those experiments that have been proven wrong still get cited um, in papers and not because they're cited as in this was wrong. They still get cited as in this is right. Um, I don't think we've quite figured out a system to um, fix that yet, though. Well, I think, Doug, I think you already said it, though. It's it's teaching it's teaching people critical critical thinking skills and and teaching them. You know, that's that's one of the things that I think you learn. You know, you hear this in bringing this back to CRM archaeology. You hear a lot of times people saying um, that don't have uh, graduate degrees. They're like, oh, what do I need a graduate degree for? Um, you know, I, I can do archaeology just fine. But there are certain things you learn when you go get a graduate degree. And one of those is how to do research. Hopefully you learn that. Uh, one of those is, is how to do a really good literature search, how to really understand what you're looking at. And that's one of the things that we need to teach people is those critical thinking skills. Because like you said, Doug, it's been a problem for hundreds of years, ever since we started printing stuff in journals. I could look at a journal from 1805, and well, 1905, and find out that it's been updated 700 times since then, you know, that particular topic. And um, I don't think we're ever going to get away from that. I mean, how many times have you guys seen articles on Facebook get put out and somebody says, oh my God, look at this. And then somebody 10 comments down is like, yeah, that was put out in 2016 and has already been debunked. It's just making its way around the internet again. You know, we just, we're just not teaching people enough of those skills. Um, uh, Steven, I think you had your virtual hand raised for a second there. Yeah. Um, and, and now I'm actually going to say something completely different. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nice. uh, yeah, well, and, it's it's not uncommon th thinking about that that um, especially at smaller conferences and stuff, um, new people or younger professionals will will talk about a certain thing, and you know like that that is directly related to the research research, particularly in CRM because we're so site specific that you know they're talking about like well we got this site and here are some methodological issues that we're noting. And, and this is really interesting and, you know, we should pursue this. And, and uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the older professionals are sitting there and it's like, well, this is nothing new. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, so, so in, in a sense that, yeah, like ideally, you know, we, we have that ability to do, you know, the follow-up research and, and stuff like that and, and chase down, um, you know, basically uh, citations and, look at citation indices and stuff like that. But um, th that doesn't always happen for conference papers. Right. Right. Um, so I was just going to toss mm -hmm. that out there. And uh, this is sort of a theme that's been running through this segment is I think I, so Bill's uh, blog post is really positive about conference presentations. And I'm very positive about them because obviously I record them. I think it's worthwhile, but I think there's also a pretty good limit. Um, and I'd like to just speak a little bit about the limits in that it's a conference presentation. Um, 
you'll probably easily, if you record it double, triple, quadruple, some of them get a hundred times the amount of people that were in the room um, viewing them, but it's not going to be a TED talk um, where you're going to get millions of views. Um, Also, it is, if YouTube suddenly shut down, they would all disappear. Uh, I'd like to make the comment that YouTube is not an archive. Um, this is a, a thing from uh, Bill's blog post. And I'm sorry he's not here so we can have a more in-depth discussion. But um, it's a resource, but it's a very fleeting resource. Um, and in no way does putting your presentation online is it a substitute for going through peer review and doing a peer-reviewed article or even like a full report. I mean, you're talking about a 15... 20 minute presentation that can't go into the level of detail that a full report, a CRM report will have, you know, depending on what the project is, hundreds of pages of, of data and information that you can't get across. Um, so I, I, for any listeners out there, I think I really want to encourage you guys to definitely record your presentations, uh, but realize that it's only a piece of what you do in a larger um, range of work and it'll definitely help but it's not going to be a substitute or replace other things that we do. Um, we basically need, still need to do it all. This is just a nice way of actually mainly reaching a lot of your peers and having that conversations. And essentially, instead of being in that conference uh, venue, that that one session that it's you and the other the session organizers and the other presenters and like maybe one other person's friend, um, <laughs> now having you now have the chance to reach two, three, 400 archaeologists to get them to yeah. see your work, which is huge. Um, yeah. And I, I know, like, I because I get comments on videos and I have to send them on to the people and stuff, I know people have uh, started partnerships uh, because of seeing someone's presentation online. It's really great for that. But um, this is not the end-all, be-all to all our woes. It's just an extra thing we can do um, that I think is better than you know, ah, better than the system we have, it's a way to improve it, especially when you're talking about conferences and our carbon footprint and how expensive it is. Like the main reason I do this is, is to, for people who can't make it to the conference one, because of, you know, costs or maybe, you know, family commitments, you know, not everyone can take a couple of days off, um, get childcare, or if you're caring for like parents or, you know, uh, you have a relative who's sick, you can't leave the home. You have to be there. So, um, like, I know some of the people who watch uh, my presentations basically never make it to conferences because they have other commitments um, that they'll never be able to make it. So it's a great way to reach people and actually be really inclusive of your fellow archaeologists. Um, Mm -hmm. So after being a bit down on it, uh, (laughs) I I, I still say you should definitely 100% do it. Um, Just realize it's it's not our, uh, our silver bullet for everything. Right. You know, I'll pretty much echo that um, and close with uh, something I've mentioned before, but this is a timely time to, to mention it again. Um, a few years ago with the Nevada Association of Archaeologists meeting, and again, I don't know what the order of the A's are. Is it Archaeological Association? Anyway, um, a few years ago, we were at a small town in Nevada like we usually are, uh, except for this year we're in Reno, but we were in Ely, Nevada, a really tiny town. Hard to get to. I mean, it's six hours from Reno just to get to Ely, and you never even leave the state. So it's uh, 
uh, small. There were maybe 50 people at that conference and uh, all Nevada archaeologists. And I gave a presentation the Friday before on digital archaeology. So it wasn't just about Nevada. It wasn't even about Nevada at all. So it was applicable to a wider audience inherently. Um, and I gave this presentation about digital archaeology and I recorded it. And I edited it and put it up on the uh, Archaeology Podcast Network and then shared it to Facebook as well um, because that all the APN podcasts go to our Facebook page. And then I shared it from the Facebook page out to some other groups all that evening. And then I gave a lightning talk the next day. They had a little session of lightning talks. And it was later in the afternoon. It was after lunch. It was a three-minute lightning talk. And I pulled up-to-date statistics. And um, I had already had several hundred... Uh, views on the website. Um, I couldn't really uh, judge download, like actual downloads and listens. But as far as just engagement and people seeing that I did something and having the ability to listen to it if they wanted to, there was over 1,500 people engaged with it on Facebook through the through the other groups. So like I said, I don't know if they listened to it or not, but they were aware of the fact that I did it and had the ability to listen. Uh, and that was less than 24 hours after I gave the talk. And like I said, there were 50 people in the room. And to your point, Doug, there might be 15 people in the room. And half the time you go to somebody's presentation because they're a friend of yours. And, you know, if it's not talking about the Maya or, you know, Clovis, <laughs> then the room's probably not full. And, uh, and, and if you want to reach a wider audience, that's one of the mandates I think we should all have is, um, you know, just have it one of our mandates is to get it out there and to, and to, to have as many people hear what we're talking about as possible um, in most cases. So um, that's pretty much all we have time for. Um, if you're a member of the Archaeology Podcast Network, I think we're going to have a short um, bonus segment on this uh, that I'm going to talk with Doug about. So go check that out. If you're not a member, go to arcpodnet.com forward slash members to become a member and check out some of the bonus content from our episodes. Um, otherwise, uh, thank you. And we will be back next time. Um, Go get your presentations recorded. Uh, Chris, can I just add, if anyone listening wants to do this, uh, please get in contact with me. I can show you how to do it. It's quite easy, quite quick. Um, it's not. It doesn't take a lot of technical uh, expertise. If you can manage um, Microsoft Word or your phone, mm -hmm. you can record a conference and edit it. And it's... It's not a big there you go. thing. So please get in contact if you're interested. There you go. All right. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at arcpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Bye. See ya. Now it's just random numbers. Steven, wasn't 88 the Scottish one, I think, last time? Bye. <laughs> Something like that. Now it's eight sixty five. <laughs>
in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.